0: Now, last time we were together in Job 16, Job's deep cry was for comfort, and we talked about a message called true comfort. And one of the verses that we came across was that Job addressed his three friends, and he called them miserable comforters, which I mentioned is a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, You shouldn't be a miserable comforter. If you're a comforter, you're a comforter, right? But they weren't very good at it, and the reason that they weren't very good at it is because they really believe that Job was incurring God's disciplinary hand, or maybe even you could describe it as God's wrath. They believe that Job had done something wrong. That's the only way that you could uh, explain his calamity, all that he had gone through. And so Job's heart's cry for comfort moves into a heart's cry for hope, as we pick up the text in Job 17, verse 1. And Job with a, what we might describe as a lamentation, says Job 17.1, My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. I think you could see in here a note of emotional intensity. I went back and uh, I haven't listened to Pastor Chuck Smith in a long time, but I listened to a little portion that he did in the book of Job, and he was saying that, When you imagine the interchanges between Job and his three friends, you have to understand the culture. And in that culture, and if you've ever been to Israel or dealt with people from that part of the world, you know how they can be They're very intense in their communication. In fact, uh, last time we went to Israel, we were on the bus and we had two brothers who were driving us around. And it was amazing to watch their reactions to traffic. And in that part of the world, honking your horn is not the exception, it's the rule. So here, when you hear a horn honk, you're kind of like, you know, what's going on? Or you know it's a car alarm. But there, honking the horn multiple times is the norm. And it'd be something like this. A car would turn right in front of our bus, and he would go, honk, 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 honk. And he would go, ba, bah, 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 and then he would look at his brother while driving the bus. And he and his brother go i don't know and back and forth that they would go and we'd be going watch the road watch the road this guy though was an incredible bus driver he was able to maneuver this bus but it was always so funny how they would go from being all fired up to then they would be laughing the next moment (laughs) and like these people are intense this is just kind of how they roll now i come from an italian family and My wife is Irish, which I guess they're pretty close in terms of emotional intensity. (laughs) But I remember when she first was being introduced to our family, in order to be heard at a family dinner table, you have to just talk louder than the other person, right? So, and then Brenda would just have to, you know, raise her voice to be heard. Hey, I'm over here. Anyway, it's hard not to kind of join in with that mode, right? When people are intense, you kind of get fired up too. (laughs) Anyway, so maybe we should see when Job says, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Maybe it's more intense than we might see it as someone in the West. Uh, One writer says, Job is likely concerned that his disgrace will follow him to the grave. See the end of verse one, the grave is ready for me. The word used for grave there is the word for a common grave. And it made me think of Isaiah 53, 9 where Jesus had his grave assigned with the wicked, but he was a writ with a rich man in his death. And uh, we know that it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that ultimately became the temporary resting place for Jesus, right? Just, just for a little bit of time, until he rose from the dead. He would have been assigned a grave with the wicked because he was crucified as a capital criminal, was Jesus, even though he was completely innocent. And the norm would be that he would go into a common graveyard, like a a graveyard for criminals, but a rich man offered up his tomb, and then Nicodemus came with him, and we know the rest of the story. Job may be concerned that since he's been dishonored in life, maybe that will follow him in death. Maybe he won't even receive an honorable burial, verse 2. Job says, Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation." job's eye focused and we saw last time we were together and we'll talk about this a little bit that not only were job's friends poor comforters but people were coming by job as he sat on the ash heap just outside the city gate and they were mocking him and people were literally and you may not have ever seen this in the book of job they were literally coming by and smacking him in the face and i I I think there's no other way to take the verse than literally slapping him in the face. And we drew parallels between Job in the book of Job and the greater Job, Jesus, who literally received slaps in the face. And people were mocking him and wagging their heads and gaping at him and saying, You! You said you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. And remember all that Jesus faced. And Job, the lesser Jesus, the foreshadowing, if you will, of Jesus says, Surely mockers are with me. My eye gazes on their provocation. The language seems to be that all Job could do was look at them when they were mocking him. He had maybe no words, no response. We know that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was silent before his accusers. He opened not his mouth, even though he easily could have you know, brought the fire of God. Job was broken. A lot of his brokenness had to do with those who were mocking him plus his situation. One writer says, the language of the gazing eye may indicate that their hatred was moving Job to tears. Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Proverbs 18.14 says, the spirit of a man can endure sickness, but a broken spirit, who can bear it? Proverbs 18.14, and then Jesus said these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I know you all know that there's been a major movement in schools in the U.S. to try to combat bullying. And when a child is being bullied, or if you've ever experienced any kind of bullying, it is a sad thing to experience because oftentimes you are isolated, or at least you feel isolated and alone. And if you are being bullied by others, sometimes you don't even know how to respond. And often kids that are bullied are being bullied by multiple kids or kids that are bigger than them or more intimidating them or whatever. And it would seem that this is the picture, that Job is being bullied. He's too physically weak to respond. He may not have even any energy to to say something back to them. He's been slapped around. He's been mocked. And even his friends, in quotes, have contributed to his broken spirit. Job needed true comfort. In this section, he he says, my spirit is broken. My, My life is over. The next thing is the grave. And when we're going through a season of difficulty, it would seem, and I'm sure you've all experienced this, when we have a season of darkness, where something goes awry and it may be something serious we get tunnel vision on that problem and it's hard to see any light when we're going through that difficulty and job threw up his hands and i think he had every reason humanly to do so and he went something like this this is job's la- lament my life is over what else do i have to live for all i have to look forward to now is the grave and sometimes when we've gone through a tough season, when we've had a, a bad turn of events, when we get some hard news, that's where we end up. We, we end up thinking my life's over. How, can, how am I gonna live from this point forward? How could anything that I dreamed of come to pass now? And I wanna just tell you to hang in there because sometimes when it feels like our life is over, that's only because we can only see it from a limited perspective. We all know the end of the book of Job, and we know that Job's life was not over. Job had a long life ahead of him. He was going to see multiple generations. God was going to restore back to him double, but Job just couldn't see it at the moment. And when we get tunnel vision in the moment and we get desperate, we think, you know, everything's tilted in one direction and there's absolutely no hope. Just remember that the God of hope loves you, and he can work things together for good even when we can't see it now in the book of Lamentations for those of you who would like to turn to Lamentations you got to go to your right and uh, it's Isaiah Jeremiah Lamentations Ezekiel Daniel I want to show you this this particular verse because it has both the brokenness and the hope in it and this is a lament over the destruction of Israel There are uh, many scholars that believe that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations. And it's gonna turn hopeful, but I want you to see a little bit of the fuller context. And just imagine, this is the picture. Uh, There's a prophet who's been warning his nation that God was gonna judge if they didn't repent, they wouldn't listen, and then his eyes had to watch it happen. So it's kind of like when you've uh, told a friend, don't do what you're doing, you're gonna destroy your life, you're gonna ruin your family, you know, maybe you've been that guy or that gal, and then you watched it happen, and you had no joy. You didn't want to tell that person, I told you so, but you watched the destruction. You know, it's like night following day. You just knew it was going to happen. That's what happened to the writer of Lamentations, and he says in chapter 3, verse 16 of Lamentations, he says, he, he's speaking of God, has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. And I want you to see the parallels to Job. My soul, Lamentations 317, has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, My strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Some of us have forgotten what happiness feels like. And I would just tell you, there's a there's a way to get back there. There's a way to get back to joy, there's a way to get back to happiness. But sometimes we can forget even what that feels like, because we've had long stretches of disappointment and even grief. He says, Remember my affliction, 19, and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. And then notice what he says: Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, his has said, his covenant loyal love, indeed, his loving kindness what's your Bible say? They never cease. God's love, God will never, if you're in Christ Jesus, God will never stop loving you. He will love you all the way through eternity. Amen? We learned that in 1 Corinthians 13, that now abide faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Love will last forever. Love will never fail. Now, earthly loves can disappoint us, some people that said they loved us maybe bailed on us, but God's love never ceases. His compassions, verse 22, what's your Bible say? They never fail, never. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Notice how the writer of Lamentation goes from grief to his reality and, and the difficulties of, around him to hope because he finds his hope in the Lord. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him or hope uh, in him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Now, you might be in a tough spot, but I would imagine that most of us are not probably in as bad a spot as Job or Jeremiah. (laughs) Amen? We're not watching the destruction of our nation after warning our nation for years. We haven't lost maybe you know, our entire estate and family, etc. But these men, they had to turn back to God. They had to lean into God, back to the book of Job. Um, in Romans 15, this is just something to write down for your notes. This is 3 through 5. It says, Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our church instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. See, Job was broken in spirit, but he is going to, oftentimes in the book, when it seems like it's all hope is lost, he's gonna find a glimmer of hope as he turns to God. Job 17.2 says, surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility or their provocation. If you have a New Living Translation, it says, Job 17.2, I am surrounded by mockers. I watch how bitterly they taunt me. Once again, we are reminded that Job was surrounded by people that were bullying him and taunting him. That is a terrible feeling to be on the receiving end of mockery. It's easy, for some people, it's easy to dish it out and it's not so easy to take it, amen? Some of us are good dishers and not good takers. And, you know, sometimes we do things in good fun with friends and and we know what the boundaries are. But have you ever noticed you could be going back and forth even with a buddy and cross that line and the buddy goes, ooh, ow, ooh." this belongs to you. (laughs) And you say, no, it's yours. Well, that's how Job felt. The mockers were there. And there's a parallel between Job and the Messiah. Job had to watch his antagonists, who would just stare at him, and Jesus was affixed to a cross, and he had to just stand there, lay there, and take it unless he supernaturally delivered himself, which he couldn't do because he was paying for our salvation. He just had to take it. Can you imagine being the God of the universe? You have all the power within you to end it in a microsecond, but you've got to take it. And you're doing it for the ones that are mocking you. And incredibly, from the cross, Jesus says, Father, not destroy them, but Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I mentioned in a recent sermon, sometimes I have to say, Father, forgive me. I knew exactly what I was doing. And I did it anyway. Lay down now a pledge for me with thyself. Verse 3. Who is there that will be my guarantor? If you have a NIV, it reads quite differently. It says, give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? Job knows his friends aren't going to do it. And though verse 3 is difficult, I think... Um, To translate, I think the NIV makes it sound like Job is saying God is demanding a pledge from him, but I think it's the opposite, like the New American Standard and others. Job is appealing to God to put up security or a pledge for him. When you put up security or a pledge for a person, you ever co-sign for a loan, put up earnest money in a business deal, what you are saying is that you are taking responsibility that the deal goes well or the person pays and Job is looking for some sense of security right now. He's saying, I need a pledge. I need some help. And even though Job wrongly has concluded that God is the one doing everything to him, he also asked God for a pledge. He also asked God to be his security. And in the last chapter, we saw, we saw that he said, my advocate is on high. Job still has faith. And he's saying, would you be my surety? Would you be my advocate Would you guarantee my security? Psalm 119, verse 121 and 122 says, I've done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good or give your servant a pledge for good, ESV. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. That's Psalm 119, 121 and 122. Lord, would you give me, would you interpose this with an oath. Now many of you are familiar with the book of Hebrews and in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is addressing a group of early Jewish Christians, or at least professors to the Christian faith who were going through a very difficult time, having property seized, being kicked out of the synagogue, uh, maybe losing family relationships. It may be that there were family members that said, "If you trust the Messiah, you are no longer my brother, no longer my sister." You're no longer my son. It was that radical. You're kicked out of the synagogue. We won't do business anymore. Maybe even seizure of property. It was very ugly. And in that particular section, I'd like to turn there because I think you're going to find some hopeful stuff. It's all the way in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter six, where the writer talks about the hope that we have is what? You remember Bible students? It's the anchor of our souls. The hope we have is the anchor of our souls. In uh, a recent album by a Christian singer called Soul Anchor, he says, the first century symbol, as you you turn to Hebrews 6, wasn't a cross for Christianity, it was an anchor. If I'm a first century Christian, I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified or set ablaze as torches of of, uh, Emperor Nero's and his garden parties. The symbol that most encouraged my faith was an anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. Christian use of the anchor echoed in Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Epitaphs on believers' tombs dating as far back as the end of the first century frequently displayed anchors alongside messages of hope. These expressions were found all over Christian graveyards. In fact, archaeologists found about 70 examples of these kinds of messages in one cemetery alone, and they were often attached to the anchor. I want you to see in Hebrews 6.17 the idea of a pledge and the anchor and hope when he says, Hebrews 6.17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed it with an oath. Because God, NIV, wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. You know that God can't swear by anyone higher than himself, so he swore by himself. And he did this for Abraham in terms of his future promises and his lineage, and he does it for us In the same way as he did for Abraham, he interposes the promise of the gospel and our secure future with an oath. And God has given us a pledge. And the pledge is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's already given us the guarantee. God is our guarantor, if you will. He's already signed the paper, signed in the blood of the Lamb. This one belongs to me, and they will make it into my heavenly kingdom. Amen? This is why I have hope. The world, my life, often feels like a storm. Uh, This world is crazy. I can feel like I get blown around, and the moment I think I'm stable, then something else can come out of left field. All of a sudden, a gust of wind that comes from an unexpected source. Anybody relating to what I'm saying right now? Right? Just when I thought I hit calm waters, oh no. Here we go. But we don't grieve like those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Timothy 1.1 says Jesus Christ is our hope. Titus 2.13 says we are looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 6.17 it says, to the rich, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And Hebrews 10.23 10.23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Amen? And then 1 Peter 1.13 says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That hope, back to Job, is the anchor of my soul. If you're being blown around right now, if life is hard and it can be... Um, My prayer is that you'll get that image of the anchor in your heart and your soul and your mind. Jesus Christ is our anchor. Now, what does an anchor do? An anchor will go down into the sea or into the lake and it will hold the the vessel steady in the storm. That's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't always remove the storm. He just promises to be an anchor in the storm. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Lord, it's blowing my hair back. I worked hard on my hairdo. What's going on here? Remember the apostles? Uh, they, roar, they rode all night and the wind was opposite them and Jesus came and the f- was the fourth watch of the night walking on the sea. Why did he wait till the fourth watch? He waited till they were exhausted. He waited till their hope was razor thin and then he came to them walking on the sea. You see, this is what God often does. And I don't know why he waits so long. (laughs) I do wish he would come earlier. Usually I'm tapping my watch if I wore a watch. Lord! (laughs) And people like to say he's never late. He's always right on time. I think it depends on your perspective. Sometimes he feels late. (laughs) But he is good. And he loves us. For thou hast kept their heart, back in Job 17 verse 4, their heart, my friend's heart, I think he's talking about now, from understanding, therefore thou, thou will not exalt them. If you have a New Living translation, it says, Job 17, for it, therefore you will not let them triumph, or New Living, do not let them triumph. It seems that my friends don't understand They keep coming up with weak, lame arguments. You're the only one who can be my surety. You're the only one who can be my pledge. You're the only one who knows the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I must look to you because it's obvious that they don't understand. In fact, it seems that you've kept them from understanding. Do You remember when Jesus was on the earth and he spoke to the people in parables and the question came up, why? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus said, because in the case of these folks, the Isaiah prophecy is fulfilled. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart in return, and I should heal them. But then Jesus says to the apostles, but blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Sometimes we're trying to communicate truth to someone we love, and it feels like there's a a big shield up there, and we're just, there's a failure to communicate. And sometimes there's a spiritual block. The, The God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so that they don't see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a mystery in how all that works. But that's how Job felt. He says, no matter what I tell these guys about my innocence, they won't believe me. He who informs against his friends, this is a warning to Job's friends, he who denounces his friend for a share of the spoil, it might hint that the motivation of these guys was in question, I don't know. The eyes of his children also shall languish or fail. Now the Bible teaches that the sins of the parents, the children are, are, don't pay for them in the sense of ultimate justice. But the children do reap what parents sow or often do. Amen? So for example, if you had a parent who was an alcoholic, it doesn't mean you're going to become an alcoholic, but it does mean that you've had to deal with some of the consequences of those choices. Amen? And sometimes you learn some of that behavior. Sometimes there is a connection in the family history. Job is warning them. He's using a proverb of the day and questioning their motives. What is their motive? Why do you think the friends told Job everything that they did? I don't know for sure, but I just had something to share with you guys. When you are in an argument with someone and you begin to wonder, as you hear a person speak, whether or not you're on track, just be careful that your motive is not having to be right. And I've just put that out there for whoever that resonates with. Make sure that your motive doesn't always end up that you have to be right even when you're digging a bigger hole for yourself. And do you know why we do that? We do that because of one word. It's called pride. We just can't take being wrong or admitting that we're wrong. If Job's friends would have just said, you know what, Job, maybe we do have it wrong. We've known you for a long time. You're a wise man. We don't think you're a liar. So let's seek the Lord. Let's pray. Maybe we're wrong. That's in a marital disagreement with some intense fellowship going on between husband and wife? That might be a good thing to remember. I don't have to be right. But I want to be right. but you don't have to be, right? You might pause and say, you know what, honey? We've been married a long time. I love you. I know you. Why don't we just both pray? Why don't we take a moment and reconvene (laughs) at the kitchen table at whatever time (laughs) works for you? See, there was a stubbornness there. What was their motive? Was it just about being right? Job turns to God, he says, but he, God has made me a byword of the people. Would you notice this? Six, I am one at whom men spit. Not only were people assembling around Job and slapping him in the face and mocking him, people were coming by the greatest man in the east and spitting at him and perhaps spitting in his face. And he may not have even had the strength to lift a hand try to block his face. Remember, he, was, he painted a picture in the last chapter where it's like he, he wanted to just put his head in the sand. When you see the word byword there, it means I've become a joke. I'm a revulsion. I'm a reproach. People walk by me regularly, and I'm the guy that people make fun of and spit at. We were traveling uh, to Arizona to visit my youngest son or to get him checked into school and we're going into a store and there was a man outside this store we're in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the desert it's so hot and there was a homeless man and he was kneeling down almost like a catcher kneels down and he was thin and uh, unkempt and he wouldn't even look up and I watched, I watched my son buy a big jug of water and And put it before him because it was obvious to my son that he needed water but I was looking at the man and I said something to my son as we drove away I said where do you think he goes he's at a little like am p.m. in the middle of nowhere where do you think he goes It, it didn't even look like he wanted to have a conversation with somebody but can you imagine how many people probably walk by that guy and go pfft Sometimes I wonder when we see people like that if the Lord might not say to us, when you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. How easily we pass people by. It says of the Messiah, Isaiah 56 and 7, in a prophecy, 700 years before he would die on the cross, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I'm not disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. Do you remember how I've been telling you that Job is a foreshadowing of the greater Job, Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer? Job got mocked, encircled by wicked people, slapped in the face, and spit at. And these are all foreshadowings of what the Messiah would go through. God and human flesh would be treated this way. In fact, Mark 14:65 uh, says, "Some began to spit at Jesus to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists. And they said to him, "Prophesy." And the officers received him with slaps in the face, Mark 14:65. In light of this, Job says, "My eye has also grown dim because of grief. All my members are as a shadow. Job might put it this way, in modern vernacular, I'm a shadow of my former self. Grief, for those of you who are grieving, can bring a hard shadow over your life. Job's body was feeling it. His spirit was feeling it. We saw about his, uh, we read about his thinness in chapter 16. He seemed to be not able to eat and um, just not doing well. He says, My eye has grown dim, it's hard to see light. The upright shall be appalled at this verses. 8 through 10 kind of are a little difficult to translate, but let me take my best shot at it. And the innocent shall stir up himself against the godless. Nevertheless, 9, the righteous shall hold to his way, and he who has clean hands shall grow stronger and stronger. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 for a second. On the heels of what Job just shared about his life and what he was going through, his innocence is affirmed in chapter 1. The godless are taunting Job, But Job is called upright and innocent by God in chapter 1, or blameless. And so I think what Job is saying is, I'm going to hold on to my integrity despite what people are saying about me and what people are doing to me. I think one of the more difficult things to do in life is to hold on to your integrity in the face of severe opposition to plow through, to not not lose who you are, what your values are, even if you're mocked, even if you're spit upon, to keep moving forward, even if you're misunderstood, to keep moving forward. Nevertheless, the righteous shall hold to his way. Hold your way, my dear saint. And he who has clean hands shall grow stronger and stronger. Maybe a hint of hope here from Job, that as he holds on to God, He will find new strength. I want you to turn to the Psalms, which is the next book to your right, Psalm 84. Psalm 84, I want to just bless you with this psalm because I think you're going to see this idea of stronger and stronger, of going from strength to strength. Look at Isaiah 84, I'm sorry, Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse five. Psalm 84, verse five. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's a beautiful pilgrimage psalm, like the pilgrimage of a believer We pick it up in verse 5, Psalm 84. How blessed is the man whose strength is in thee and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from, what's your Bible say? From strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah, that's a pause in the music. Pause, meditate, think about it. Behold our shield, O God, look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man or the woman who what? who trusts in thee. Going through the Valley of Tears, the Valley of Baca, yet from strength to strength. There's an interesting dynamic, back to Job 17, let me explain. It would seem that when we're going through a trial, sometimes what can happen, see if this uh, speaks to your heart, is that all of a sudden, your natural human strength goes out the door, and there's a spiritual strength that comes into your life at times when you feel like you've got nothing else left. Do you know why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When my natural resources are gone, and I don't like that feeling at all, the feeling of vulnerability, the feeling that I'm tapped out, that I have no way to defend myself here, that people are talking about me and I, and I don't know what to do, and all of a sudden we find strength from the Lord Job 17:10 says, "But come again, all of you now, for I do not find a wise man among you." <laughs> this is Job talking to his friends, his poor comforters, a sarcastic jab, something like this, "Go ahead, take another shot," Or, as Pat Benatar sang back in the day, "Hit me with your best shot!" Go on, and hit me with your best shot." That doesn't sound anything like Pat Benatar. Now, how many of you have ever gotten to a point in your life where you've taken so many blows in a certain context, you're like, all right, come on. Give me your best shot. Take another stab at it. Here's one thing I do know. I'm not going to find one wise <laughs> person among you or, or maybe one wise word that comes out of your mouth. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. They're taking to each other to court. Uh, suing each other in the secular courts and he says i say this to your shame first corinthians 6 5 is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren first corinthians 6 5 do you sometimes watch people commenting on the world and situations and you you might want to cry out to your television is there not one wise person left on the planet who actually has a microphone and can talk to this subject, they're there, but they often don't have the microphone. Job says, my days are past, my plans are torn apart, even the wishes of my heart. Maybe you've said something similar to verse 11. It's all over. My plans are over. The desires of my heart are over. It's over. I said that a lot to my mother when I was a teenager. Because teenagers, you know, when we go through stuff as a teenager, we think everything's over, right? And I would say something like this. "Something would go wrong and I would say, I can't believe it! I can't believe it! My Italian mother would say, well, believe it! (laughs) Because it's happening! (laughs) Thanks, Mom. My life's over! Sometimes we go through a breakup, you know, we like somebody, especially when we're younger. And, we, the Google, and the goo, guy, guy, and the Gaga, you know, they can do nothing wrong. And then you get in a fight with that person, or they say something, cross to you, and they're like, oh, my life is over, my plans are over, you're 14, I know, but just wait. <laughs> right? Those of us who have logged a few miles, sometimes it feels like, you know, we, we go through that rejection or something. There's never going to, go, the sun's not coming out again. It's over. Isaiah 60, verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, day of the Lord imagery, deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. The Lord is my light, And my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. People have said often that when the world is darkest, that's when the light shines the brightest. Then you will be radiant. Isaiah 60, verse 5. Your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. You can look at Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 5 later on. They make night into day, saying, The light is near. Job may be speaking of his friends who were saying, If you just repent, Job, the light's near. The moment that you admit the wrong you've done, the light's near in the presence of darkness. Just repent, but the light will flood in, Job. And Job's saying, But I don't know what to repent of. I was walking with God. You ever been there before? You get persecution, you get rejection. Maybe you have a a Joseph moment where you did the right thing morally, ethically, and you still got fired or lost your job or lost favor. That's hard. Job says, if I look for Sheol as my home or the grave, I make my bed in the darkness. If the only home I hope for is the grave, I spread out my bed in darkness. NIV. Look at 14. If I call to the pit, you are my father. To the worm... My mother and my sister. Job is saying, I'm picking out a part in the graveyard. My life is over. You know who's going to be my friend? Since none of you are my friends and I don't even know where I stand with God. The worm's going to be my friend. The worm will be my mother. I'll lay down in the dirt and I'll say to the worm as I put a little blankie over him, you're the only one who understands me, little earthwormy. I told you guys a story before but we're in Nepal and in India. We went into a half-star hotel. It's about 120 degrees outside. <laughs> it took us about 24 hours in an airplane. I'm exhausted. There's people with machine guns and rifles everywhere checking our IDs. Mission's trip. We go into this hotel and all of a sudden I feel movement. <laughs> And I see these nets over the bed and the guide says to us, oh, what's that? What's that? Oh, that's the geckos. The geckos? No, you got to leave the geckos alone because they eat the wasps. And that's why you have the nets over your bed because they eat the wasps and the geckos are your friend. Plus, they'll try to sell you insurance while you're there. And anyway, so... (laughs) Apparently, you had to invite the gecko into your bed. You're the only one that understands me, little gecko. <laughs> what do you mean the gecko's my friend? No, they eat the wasps. <laughs> and by the way, don't drink the water. <laughs> I mean, Job's gotten to a point where he's calling worms his family. You're my mother. You're my sister. Man. Man. And that's because even his wife told him to curse God and die. You know, imagine, just try to put yourself there for a second. You've lost everything in your life. You are a disaster from illness. You've been going through it for months. And everyone who approaches you either tells you that you're a dirty, rotten sinner, slaps you in the face, spits in your face, Or mocks you as they walk by? How is this guy even still alive? And see, this is where the hope for each of us flickers. Even in the sad state of affairs in the book of Job, when Job now says in 15, and you can understand his cry now, where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? Does anybody care about my hope? <laughs> We've all probably gotten there before, even though we don't want to be selfish. We give, give, give and so- give some more. You moms can totally relate this. And finally, you say, where's my, <laughs> stop, where's my Calgon bath? Where is my two hours of television? I'm gonna go play golf. You watch these kids. <laughs> okay, okay, honey. Right. <laughs> I- Where's my hope? You looking for hope? You know some people that are looking for hope? We're all going to end up there. Maybe you're asking, does anybody really care about me? Is there any true hope? Will it, maybe speaking of hope here, 16, go down with me to Sheol or to the grave? Shall we together, me and my so-called hope, go down into the dust? Will my hope go with me when this life's over? Do you remember that Job was talking in the last chapter about a witness and an advocate that he had? Back to chapter 16, just take a peek at verse 18. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood, let there be a, no resting place for my cry. And then he says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is where? Is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. But again, Job says, even now, 19 of chapter 16, my witness is in heaven. He knows that God is his ultimate hope. And here's where I want us to land as we conclude. Jesus Christ is my hope. And that hope is the anchor of my soul. And when I consider that he came, became the greater Job, if you will, took on the form of a bondservant and suffered what he did for me, it's amazing. Now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Psalm 62, 5 says, For my hope is from him. And Psalm 71, verse 5 says, You are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth.